Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Leslie Chang, and today's episode is a conversation with science writer Ed Yong. Ed is a staff writer at The Atlantic and has just published his first book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. His book is all about the microbiome, which is the term that describes the ecosystems of all the microscopic organisms that live in us and on us. Over the past decade or so, there have been a number of studies that show correlations between the microbiome and a variety of health outcomes, like irritable bowel syndrome, obesity, and even autism. But these microbes form complex ecosystems, and scientists are only beginning to understand the nature of the relationships and the mechanisms at play. Here at GenAnthro, we're interested in the topic not just because it's an exciting field of science— but also because it's a whole new lens through which we can understand our environment and our relationship to an invisible world of life. Even though microbes are hidden from view, they dominate the planet and set the conditions of all life on Earth. Our producer Mike Osborne talked to Ed Yong last week and began the interview by asking him why he wanted to write this book. So I've been reporting on microbes and their relationships with humans and other animals for the better part of a decade now. And the reason I find it so fascinating is that it totally changes um, my perspective on the world around me. Like I've loved the natural world since I was a kid. You know, I was that kid who insisted on going to zoos all the time. I watched nature documentaries. You know, I had a pretty good grasp of the biology of the animal kingdom. And since delving into this field of science, it's become clear that the world I thought I knew is profoundly influenced by this other hidden world that I, I don't really know much about and that we as, as a species are only really starting to understand. So, so many familiar um, parts of our lives that we think of as the province of individuals, whether it's digestion or immunity or our evolution, really happens in partnership 
uh, and in symbiosis with many other species which we're barely aware of. And I think that is both wonderful and thought-provoking and subversive. And it reveals so many wonderful stories that I wanted to tell as part of this book. I'm really glad in your answer that you called out your sort of love of the natural world, because I think that's one of the things that, you know, makes it appropriate for featuring this book and this work uh, on an environmental podcast. One of the things that really struck me about the book was how little... Well, I mean, you know, we're in the lab kind of a lot and talking to people in the in the medical sciences quite a bit. But there is a ton of field ecology of all sorts. And I think that that's really underappreciated when it comes to understanding the microbiome. Would you agree? And if so, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. And that was another motivation for writing the book, that the, the hype and the excitement around the microbiome is really centered on the human microbiome. So how the microbes in our bodies are associated with health and disease, with diet, all these things that are directly pertinent to us. But of course, we are just yet another animal, uh, and all animals have a teeming microbiome. And from a bacterium's perspective, we, you know, we're all just yet another habitat in which to to live uh, and to thrive. Um, and there's been so much research on animal microbiomes, and in many ways it's progressed a lot faster than it has in the human arena because the scientists there are asking these really fundamental questions like when and how did these uh, relationships evolve? How do um, animals form partnerships with microbes in the first place? How do those microbes affect our, our lives, our development, our evolution? our genomes. All these very fundamental things have been studied by people in very many disparate corners of biology for a very long time. So I wanted to write a book that united those with the discoveries that are being made in, in human science and in medicine, and to show the parallels between, say, a coral reef and the human gut, or between a bug swallowing insecticide detoxifying microbes from the soil and a human going for a fecal transplant or taking probiotics. Because, you know, I think biology just becomes richer when we consider ourselves in the context of the rest of the tree of life and the world around us. I actually, you know, I really liked that you started with early evolution uh, in, in, I can't remember which chapter it was. It was one of the first two chapters. Mm -hmm. um, because it, for me, it really set this sort of foundation of these microbes have been around really since the beginning and that the long billion, you know, several billion year history, especially the most interesting half billion most recent years, is really built on that template. So there's a point in the book which you begin with the early miracle of two different life forms fusing. Can you mm. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, we know that all of our cells contain little structures called mitochondria, which provide us with energy. And these are, you know, as as essential as it's possible to be. Don't have mitochondria, we don't we don't survive. Um, and mitochondria, it's now very uh, very clear that they are former bacteria. So they were once free living microbes that found their way into a host cell and became domesticated. They live in us, in the cells of every animal, every plant. They are ubiquitous. And there's a school of thought that that event, the fusion of a host cell with the bacterium that eventually became the mitochondria, was the, the creation moment of uh, the eukaryote. So that's the massive group of life forms that includes us 
animals, plants, fungi, algae, all the visible complex life that we can see, that we're familiar with came from that union. And, you know, whether it was that particular moment or whether the mitochondria came after, it's clear that we all depend on this microbial foundation. And that's true not just for the mitochondria, but for microbes in general. As, as you say, um, I point out in the book that for the vast majority of life on Earth, life was entirely microbial and animals evolved in that context. So when we appeared on the scene, we did so in a world that was already dominated and full of microbes. So we plugged ourselves into their biology. We learned to live with them and to exploit them and to depend on them. And I think, of course we did, because they were what was around. We had to evolve in a way that made use of and lived in harmony with those creatures that were already the lords of the planet. And I came to that while reporting the book by thinking, why is it that so many really important aspects of our lives, like the creation of our immune system, the development of our organs, why should we have outsourced to these really vital functions to microbes or, or to chemicals that the microbes produce? And the answer, I think, is we had no other choice. What other choice was there? At the very dawn of the animal kingdom, microbes were already everywhere. And it was those creatures that could best live in that milieu of microbial signals that gave rise to us. I mean, I think one of the things to sort of build upon that point was that it really challenged, didn't exactly challenge sort of the way I think of and frame evolution, but in another sense it did. I mean, when I think about how do predator-prey relationships develop over long time scales and, you know, how do we get complex ecosystems with a variety of food webs? I tend to just go quickly to the higher trophic species, the big mammals or the big reptiles or big mm, vertebrates. Mm. And I think that if so much of evolution is happening at this much smaller, literally smaller level, and at a, at a rate that's not obvious to the human eye, it begins mm. to kind of change the way you think about evolution and well, the whole process uh, mm. on very, very long timescales. Yeah, the story of evolution is largely a microbial story. And you're right. I don't feel that this changes the, the core principles of Darwinian evolution, which are, are very much the same whether you're talking about a, a microbe or a mammal. But it is clear that our evolution is influenced by them because they affect our fitness, our ability to survive. You know, we have animals, we have animals that can't survive if they don't have the right microbes in them. We have uh, deep sea worms that have no mouths or guts. They depend on microbes entirely for their nourishment. We have rats and uh, bugs that can become instantly resistant to the toxins in um, pesticides or, or the, the poisons in plants by swallowing the right microbes. So clearly they can they can influence our ability to survive and to reproduce. They influence our genetic variation because by taking in the right microbes, uh, we can gain access to their genes and all the abilities that they confer. And we can even move their genes into our own genomes on rare occasions. 
and you know they they are heritable to an extent. We pass on microbes uh, from from parent to child, from peer to peer. So I think it's right to say that this doesn't uproot evolution as Darwin saw it, but it means that we larger organisms that live in on slow and more familiar timescales can evolve at very fast paces by striking up the right partnerships with microbes around us. You know, what I'm hearing, and this was my sense from the book, is that, uh, as you said, it doesn't upend our notions of Darwinian evolution, but it is a side angle and a different view into it, and a little bit messier than I'm, I'm used to thinking of it. I mean, it just, it, it added a layer of depth to how, I guess I would say, advantages come to pass between species and across species, but also migrate through ecosystems. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I've, I've got a whole chapter in the book about this concept of horizontal gene transfer, which is one of my favorite themes in the microbiome space and in biology in general. So this idea that while humans and other animals have to pass genes down vertically from parent to child, uh, bacteria aren't so constrained. So two bacteria meeting each other can swap DNA and genes as easily as you or I might trade uh, phone numbers or, or ideas. And that does allow them to, to evolve very quickly so they can pick up uh, genes for antibiotic resistance, for example, or, or genes that allow them to become more infectious or more virulent. And by partnering with microbes, we gain access to that rapid speed. We can bring genes from environmental microbes into our own microbiome. So um, there's a great example where people in Japan um, have genes in their gut microbes that allow them to better digest the carbohydrates and seaweed because their ancestors swallowed uh, marine microbes that had those genes, which then passed into their own gut bacteria. And we see many cases in which animals have picked up bacterial genes into their own genomes, you know, beetles that can infest coffee plants because they have genes that allow them to break into those plants. We have uh, animals that can become resistant to disease because they have antibiotic producing genes in their bodies that they stole from bacteria. There's so many examples where bacteria have sort of given a, a rocket boost to animal evolution by supplementing our genetic material with their own. Well, and finding a, a home within us with which to innovate. I mean, I absolutely loved that example of the small organism that's ex associated with, you know, marine environments in Japan and is now mm -hmm. being found in the stomach of Japanese people who have had a certain diet, if I'm remembering that story correctly. Yeah, and um, I, I think um, the, the pace at which these gene exchanges happens is vastly higher in the human body than in a lot of other environments. So uh, I actually want to stick on the human body for a second, because a lot of my questions have had this sort of, you know, environmental science orientation. Uh, and when I first got a hold of the book, I was sort of expecting some sort of, you know, kind of laundry list of everything that came out of the medical sciences in recent years. Mm -hmm. And my sort of first pass general read of what the doctors are saying right now is mm -hmm. that we we have a ton of correlations and we are really way behind in understanding right now some of the causal mechanisms. So I want to get into that a little bit, but could we first sort of talk about some of those correlations, some of the things, just for the listener who's unaware or hadn't, you know, engaged much in the topic yet. Can we talk a little bit about some of the uh, health effects and outcomes and conditions that seem to have some sort of core association with the human microbiome? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are many, many of them. There's this ridiculously long and growing laundry list of conditions where people have taken some people who are sick and people who are healthy, checked out their microbiomes and found differences between them. And that's everything from obesity to malnutrition, inflammatory bowel disease, allergies, asthma, colorectal cancer, stroke, autism, anxiety, depression. I, you know, I, could, I could just go on and on and on. It seems like almost everything has been linked to the microbiome to an extent. Now, what, what does that mean? Does it mean that uh, the microbes caused those conditions or were they simply the consequence of them? Or was it both or neither? Anything is possible. Is it possible that if they are causal and there's some evidence um, that they are because you can get experiments where people transfer the microbiomes of, say, a mouse that represents that disease, put those microbes in a healthy or sterile mouse and see that some of the symptoms transfer over. So that's been done for things like diabetes and obesity. And you know, the, the, again, the list goes on. Now, if that's the case, are the microbes initiating that condition? Are they just exacerbating the symptoms? If it's the former, how important are they? Um, so say you see that microbes influence our risk of obesity. To what degree are they influencing um, the rise in obesity of the human population in general? And I think those are the big questions that we still don't have an answer to. You know, of course, you would expect to see microbiome changes in when you compare healthy and sick people, because these things are so tied into our biology. They influence so much and they are responsive to so much. But I think you're right that going from correlations to causations, trying to understand what exactly the microbes are responsible for and therefore how we might be able to improve our health by manipulating them, that is the big question mark. And we're making progress in that area, but passing out the signal from the noise is still quite challenging. I was actually thinking that, just to take two of those examples, obesity and autism, there, certainly there was a lot of excitement when some of the studies were showing that you could take the microbiome of an obese mouse or an obese human and put it into a mouse that I guess is a sterile environment. I, I forget mm -hmm. exactly how this works, but essentially you can give two populations of mice uh, the same food, and depending on the microbiome, one may gain more weight, suggesting that it's not just a simple calories in, calories out kind of uh, equation. That's mm -hmm. really exciting to people, but it's more complicated than that. And I think the other reason I wanted to bring autism into it is because you know, it, it actually shows really the limitation of what you can do with mice in general. So maybe we could talk about those examples just a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So, you know, obesity is a good one, I think, because it's one of the um, most studied conditions that have been linked to the microbiome. So you're right that, again, we know we see differences in the membership of the microbiome between obese and lean individuals, and that's both human and mice. And we see the transplant experiments that you talk about are exactly right. So you can move microbes from an obese mouse into a germ-free one and see that it puts on more weight than if you loaded it with the microbes of a a lean mouse. So all of these results do suggest that microbes have an influence on our weight. And that makes sense because they are there in our gut. They're helping to digest our food. They're affecting the way in which we deal with and process nutrients in our diet. So that makes perfect sense. But the mechanism, the ways in which they do that are unclear, as are the species that are making a difference. 
And we're still at that stage um, right now after a lot of years of work. You know, it does seem to be the case that the microbiome affects, you know, nutrition, obesity, malnutrition, that sort of thing. But the specifics of those, the actors that are responsible are still being worked out because these are such complex communities and they vary so much from person to person, from diet to diet, from day to day. And the same, I think, is going to be true for, for autism. So, you know, in this case, as as you hinted at, it's really worth stressing that the, a lot of these experiments have been done in mice that show some of the symptoms uh, that you see in autistic kids. Um, so, you know, anxiety or repetitive movements or social problems. But Autism is a social construct of people. So the you know the mice are kind of mirrors to that, but you know they're not really autistic mice, quote unquote. And so you can only take conclusions the conclusions of studies like this so far. But there are some interesting interesting results. So there are some uh, bacteria that seem to affect the immune system, uh, and through that the um, the development of the brain and, and our behaviour that seem to tamp down the presence of autistic-ish symptoms in mice. And, you know, that's, that's very interesting. It uh, suggests a possible route for uh, helping kids with some of the most severe behavioral problems. But I think, again, this is something that needs to be tested, um, something that needs to be looked at properly uh, in large-scale clinical trials in people. And, you know, the field is moving in that direction, but we're still, you know, we're still climbing. Um, I don't think we've, ever, we've even reached the precipice of the discovery yet. We're still, we're still um, logging ourselves up the mountain. Right. I, I found the, the passage on autism particularly instructive because it's true that we tend to diagnose and classify autism as uh, based on behavior that is quote-unquote abnormal. But then that begs the question, what is normal? And how do we characterize normal mice behavior if we're going to use them as test subjects? So it's, it's kind of hard to get at. Um, I want to move on and talk a little bit about milk. And uh, I, I have a wife who's 8.5 months pregnant, and she'd kill <laughs> me if I didn't ask about this. Before I do, though, I feel like we need to hit uh, one kind of sort of larger point that mm-hmm. that I actually am not sure I understand. Is mm-hmm. there any kind of core human microbiome model? Or, or, or is yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question, and actually one that the field is struggling with. So, if you ask a lot of different microbi- human microbiome scientists, they will give you different answers. But I'm I'm going to tell you mine, which is I think that people have searched for a core community. So by that I mean species or strains of microbes that exist in everyone. And I think the more common answer is that that core doesn't exist. So there are some you know, microbes that you'll find in maybe most people, uh, but very few that are across the board. What you'll more likely find are core functions, perhaps. So, so jobs that are the same um, you know, across the human population, whether it's, uh, you know, one microbe might do that job in my gut, another one might do it in yours, whether it's, you know, some aspect of digestion or making some chemical or metabolite, that sort of thing. You know, it's like um, every city has a judiciary or like a, a police force. It has lawyers and doctors and and uh, garbage people, you know, bin collectors, that sort of thing. Um, and, but it's different individuals who play that role from place to place. And perhaps it's the same for our bodies. 
there is a lot of variation. Um, so my microbiome is very different to yours, which is very different from uh, those of the listeners who, who are paying attention to this. And one of the really tough things about the human microbiome is that for all the research we've done, it is still very hard to know what causes those variations. So two very large studies recently from Europe tried to do this. You know, they looked at hundreds of possible factors from medicines to foods to to physical characteristics and they could only explain you know less than 10% of that variation so by and large we do not know why my microbiome is different to yours which is or why you know ours is different from anyone else's and that i think testifies to how early we are um, in this field of science you know mu- much less being able to craft personalized treatments you know if we don't understand what makes us different then how can we possibly use that as a basis for creating personalized therapies Right. Well, actually, all of that, I do think, uh, in terms of how we acquire our microbiomes to begin with, is a pretty good segue into uh, into this blurb about milk that appeared in The New Yorker last week that I thought was excellent. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the science of mammalian breast milk and, and human breast milk in particular? So breast milk uh, is obviously a way of nourishing a baby. But about 10% of breast milk contains these sugars uh, called HMOs, which babies cannot digest. And those sugars are there specifically to nourish a baby's first microbes. And in particular, certain species and strains that have co-evolved with us and seem to be incredibly efficient at digesting these sugars. So, the, you know, these same, these same microbes uh, then have benefits for the child. They feed the baby's gut cells, they seal up the lining of the gut, they quench, uh, the, uh, they quench inflammation. So we have this situation where a mother, a breastfeeding mother, isn't just nourishing her child, but her child's first microbes. And she's, she's setting up an entire world inside her baby. She's engineering an ecosystem through the medium of milk. So uh, something else I wanted to, that I think is part and parcel with this, it, it's hard not to get kind of pulled into this tendency of characterizing bugs as good or bad, as villains or as heroes. But I think that a theme that I I feel like you're trying to infuse throughout the book, and I think it applies to how a child's microbiome is is going, is that there's, there's some sort of messy balance we're looking for or something. I mean, maybe this isn't a a well-framed question, but I really want you to speak to a little bit of, you know, how we should think of these bugs that are in our lives and that are in our bellies. I'm I'm really glad you raised this up because I think the, um, our understanding of, of microbes has really is, is really swinging on the pendulum from fearing them and regarding them all as germs that we need to destroy and, and to almost um, adulating them and treating them as our friends or, or, or as our allies. Um, and, and I think that neither view is, is actually correct. I think bacteria are out for themselves. They have their own evolutionary interests, and to some extent, they overlap with ours, their hosts, um, the animals in whom they live. 
but never ever forget that uh, they are their own organisms and they have their own evolutionary pressures. So uh, my, the microbes in our body can be friend or foe, or perhaps both in the same time. They some carry benefits and risks. Um, some, you know, maybe partners in digestion if they're in our gut, but if they cross the lining and enter our bloodstream, they could cause blood poisoning or or inflammation. Our relationships with them depend on keeping them in line, um, negotiating with them, on ensuring that the balance of species in the community is correct. I think the idea of the microbiome and of symbiosis in general, of of different organisms living together, lends itself to this very nice, like almost happy clappy view of the world, where um, where lots of different species are working together and living peacefully and sort of cooperating for their mutual good. Uh, and I think biology isn't like that. You know, sometimes our interests can be aligned, but they can also turn. Our our alliances, as such as they are, are fragile agile ones. So yeah, I think um, like all good relationships, those with our microbes take work. Well, I, and I think, you know, this is this is where I really start to see a lot of analogies with the environmental sciences and how we preserve lands, national parks, for example. Do we have wolves? Do we allow grizzly bears? Um, you know, what, what exactly are we optimizing for? Because I do think that there's this tendency to go towards these idealistic visions of nature, whether outside in the natural world or whether inside our bodies that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. invoke some sort of, you know, sense of harmony, which is not totally incorrect, but mm-hmm. it, it's absolutely not perfect either. Yeah, this idea that you might, res- you know, return to some kind of pristine view of nature that, that everyone likes to imagine. I think that's, you know, you can see that sort of thought creeping into the human microbiome too, because people, it's clear that um, there is a much larger diversity of microbes in people from rural backgrounds or hunter-gatherer societies. Um, those people have a larger diversity of species in their bodies than than uh, we in the West do. Now, is that a bad thing that we've lost those microbes? Some would say yes. Others would say it's not clear yet. Um, and and I think, I think the latter is probably right. I don't think we can, we can jump to conclusions and say just because we in the West have fewer microbes, that that's automatically a bad thing. You know, it's like uh, it's that natural tendency to say that um, the the trappings of modern society are negative ones. Sorry, go on. What, what were you? Well, were no, you... nothing. I, other than I wanted to raise the the uh, the prospect that there is actually um, a risk of, of extinction. Perhaps. I mean, some studies have shown that multi generational studies that you can lose genetic diversity of the microbiome uh, over yep. time in a population. So you know, the stakes may be high. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. So in animals, in mouse studies, for example, we see that if you put mice on um, low fiber diets, they will gradually lose species in their gut with each passing generation. And we see in our own bodies that perhaps there are important microbes that are disappearing. Um, people in uh, Western urban uh, societies have fewer microbes than people in rural societies who have fewer microbes than hunter-gatherers who have fewer microbes than chimps and gorillas and other apes and, and so on, right? So throughout the the evolution of the primates in general and then throughout the march of um, human industrialization, we see this decline. Now, is that a bad thing? Again, I, I think that's 
I think that's unclear. Obviously, it's true that um, microbes play an important part in our lives. And one could argue that a diverse ecosystem is more resilient than a narrow and impoverished one. But, you know, again, these are ideas that that we have to test. Right. Uh, so I want to I want to cover two more things. I want to talk a little bit about probiotics and I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the design and built environment the word Anthropocene, the term, the concept, it really, it's a statement of power. It's a statement mm-hmm. of humans as a geologic force with uh, an ability to transform nature and change the rules of life. Uh, mm-hmm. But with, but it's not a statement of absolute control. It's a mm-hmm. state of growing control and power, uh, but that it still requires some humility because we are not all powerful as a species, even though we are collectively incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that those themes of human power and and choice and foresight and intention and, and motivation kind of actually lend themselves nicely to the question of, you know, should we be taking probiotics and what is the science of it? What, I guess what are some of the key messages about what we know right now in terms of probiotics and shaping our health? It's sort of a, um, a messy story. It is. Um, you know, probiotics are, are very, you know, they are, they are a big business. They are a billion dollar industry. Um, and yet, um, scientifically, the benefits of these products are, are rather underwhelming. They have been the subject of many health claims. But, you know, aside from some benefits for um, infectious diarrhea and a few other conditions of that, of that ilk, they they don't seem to live up to the the promise and the hype that surrounds them, uh, and I think there are many reasons for that. You know, historical ones. So the species that were chosen are bit players in the gut. They're not very good at establishing themselves, and they uh, they are found in rather small quantities in these products. So when you swallow them, they kind of pass through. They might have some effects, but you know they're not going to be a, they're not going to be getting a foothold in our bodies. Um, and you know i would say that the main the main lesson from probiotics and this extends to the entirety of the microbiome field is that microbiome medicine is hard it is about manipulating entire ecosystems and i think we've had a tendency to think about this in a very reductionist way so you identify microbes that seem to have benefits in like in lab experiments and you think aha I will add that microbe to people and they will be healthier, as you might expect from, say, a vitamin supplement or something like that. But, you know, it turns out, and actually vitamin supplements are more complicated than that. But yeah, even this, this, this idea that you would just add a species and you would be better um, is... You know, is I think very naive. We we talked earlier about this idea of restoring um, animals to to a national park. You know, you you wouldn't just you know shove a predator into a new ecosystem and or, or a, a you know or an, a biological control agent and expect everything to go predictably. You know, the whole history of ecology tells us that these things can have unforeseen consequences, and the same is true I think for our guts because you're putting you're trying to manipulate small constituents of this very, very large and um, interrelated community. And I think once without really understanding the ecology, so how these species cooperate and compete with each other, how they interact with us, their hosts, their environments, without really knowing that at a much more detailed level than we currently do, we're not going to be able to pull this off with any kind of precision. 
So, okay, I want to talk about the last chapter very briefly because I was really excited when uh, you're talking about the built environment because I do think of the built environment as the design cues around us that psychologically separate humankind from nature, right? Mm-hmm. And that and that we, we see, we, we exist inside a building and we say, I'm not in nature. And we go outside to a garden, we're a little bit more in nature and we go to a national park and we're really there. Um, mm-hmm. And all of those psychological barriers are false in a sense because there's really just mm-hmm. one world full of all kinds of organisms, though humans do have some ability to, to manipulate and transport, you know, or bug, bugs all over the place. So maybe you can just tell me a little bit about, you know, how you chose to end the book and why why the chapter a little bit on the built environment and if you see it as playing an important role in how we're going to build the world of the future. Yeah, I, I it was a, it was a very specific choice to end on that note. Um you know, I like to see the book as nine chapters about the microbes that exist in our bodies and those of other animals and the last chapter is extending that into everything else. So we see that microbes influence our lives uh, within the confines of our bodies. But then we see that microbiomes can connect us to the world around us. So we are constantly bleeding microbes into space and leaving an imprint of our microbial character, which to remind listeners is part of ourselves, on the spaces that we live in and inhabit. And then we are also constantly taking in microbes from the world around us. And the way we design that world can influence that traffic back and forth. So, you know, leaving an open window, having a dog in our lives, all of these things can influence the traffic of microbes into the spaces around us and therefore into our own bodies. That's important for our home, for our hospitals, you know, for for all the living spaces that we create. And I think I wanted to get across this sense that, you know, we we are ecosystems. We are teeming communities of living things. And because of those communities, we are very, very deeply connected to everything around us, including, you know, supposedly inanimate spaces. They are actually full of animacy. This is a little bit of flying off into the philosophical, but I, when I was reading the book, I was thinking a little bit about how the Generation Anthropocene podcast as a project has really been a, a, a grand attempt to understand the next generation of environmental thinking, recognizing all the problems from the previous generation. And we talked about some of them, the idealization of nature, the semi almost religious communion with it, and a sort of, you know, grappling with humankind's uh, power and humility. And mm-hmm. it occurred to me that the microbiome as a lens, as a sort of prism to understand biodiversity and the rules of life, actually may be very part and parcel with framing and understanding environmental thinking for the next generation. Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, and I think others would agree with you. So earlier this year, the White House launched the National Microbiome Initiative, um, a sort of semi-coordinated attempt to um, boost microbiome science. And I think the critical thing there is that we're not talking, it's not the National Human Microbiome Initiative. When they say microbiomes, they really mean it in its broadest possible terms. That's the community of microbes that are living in humans, in other animals, in soil, in the oceans, in, you know, in lakes and rivers, um, even in the air around us. 
the idea that the planet is a microbial one and that we humans are just a part of that for all of our power and our influence. I think that is a crucial realization. And, you know, it will, I think it will inform a lot of things in the future, the way we see ourselves, the way we um, treat the world around us, the way we, the way we look after our health, the way we design our buildings. I think everything will need to think about microbiology and microbial ecology um, because microbes are everywhere. Outstanding. Ed, I know you have to go. I always want to ask, is there anything in this conversation that I didn't cover that you'd hoped we'd talk about? I, I felt like we covered a lot. I think we I think we covered a lot. This has been a fantastic interview, uh, Michael. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Congratulations, and thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, Ed Yong's new book is called I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. It's available in stores and online now. If you're interested in reading the excerpt from the book about breast milk, you can find it online at The New Yorker. It's titled Breastfeeding the Microbiome. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thanks for listening.